Well, good morning, everyone. So this, we're going to be continuing through the book of Acts, uh, chapter 5, um, verses 17 through 42. If you don't have a Bible and would like one so you can follow through, the, it will be on the screen. You can raise your hand and Usher will bring a Bible to you. But uh, before we just dive into the message, I want to acknowledge that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. Um, and this is a man that God used to you know, help us be a better United Nation. Um, so, you know, we take a day to honor uh, Martin Luther King and the work that he has done. Um, and some of us, I, know, I don't know if children have school tomorrow or not. Maybe they don't. They don't have school. So uh, some of you, but people have to go to work. Some people still have to go to work. Um, but yeah, uh, praise God for Martin Luther King and what he did, um, what he stood for, uh, what being rooted in the teachings of Christ. Um, and all of that. So yeah, Acts chapter 5, verse 17 to 42. Uh, I won't read it up front, but we'll just uh, pray, then we'll get started, and we'll walk through the text together um, as we go through each point. So Father, in this moment, we thank you for this time of singing, of where songs are not only songs of exaltation of you, but songs can also be a prayer, recognizing, Lord, that, uh, that in life, Lord, we are going to go through struggles and trials, and it's going to feel like the waves are crashing in, and we can feel overwhelmed, but recognizing that you are our firm foundation, that we have a sure and steadfast anchor in Christ. Father, in this moment, I just pray for everyone who is in this room. Uh, Lord, we just pray that, um, that you would soften every heart and every mind uh, to be receptive to your word. Uh, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, remove and mitigate any distraction that would hinder us from receiving from your word. Um, Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive and engaged to what you are speaking to your church today. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, anoint me and uh, fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that I may be sensitive uh, to your spirit to proclaim your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit, Lord, would speak clearly through your word. Uh, was, uh, that you would help me deliver the message with, uh, with clarity, with conviction, and compassion, Lord. Um, I pray, Father, that you would uh, help us identify blind spots, areas where we need to turn from, that we need to surrender. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would also use uh, the example from the apostles here to be an inspiration and an encouragement to us, God. Uh, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever wondered how you can be at the same place with many different people, but come out with a totally different response? Like you guys are in the same place, you are hearing and seeing the, the same exact thing, but you come out with two totally different perspectives and conclusions. Some people might say it's because everyone has their own unique background, experiences, or even biases that shape them to interpret uh, their experiences. For example, uh, you may be driving down the highway and you witness or see a car accident and one person may be observing the wreckage, uh, how bad it is, and another person is not even concerned with the wreckage but with the actual people that it may have uh, affected. Um, maybe you are, uh, another example is that you're at a, a political speech and one person may uh, focus on the policy proposals, but the other person may uh, focus on the actual delivery and tone. One person uh, will say that, you know, that speech was well-organized and very informative, but the other person may conclude that it was poorly delivered but lacked substance. 
One example of this was in 2016 when Trump used his slogan to make America great. And for some people, their response was like, yeah, let's go back to the days when America was a superpower. Let's go back when we were on top, when we were known for being the best. But for other people, they heard that same phrase and right away they was like, wait a minute, things are great for us now. If we go back to the past, that, thing, that means that wasn't good for us. What do you mean to make it great again? It's good for us now. So the, the main thing is that you can be in the room with many different people, but everyone can hear and respond to a different message. And what we're going to see today in this text in verses 17 through 42 is that how different people can have different responses to the same situation. To catch you up to speed or where we are, we've been in the book of Acts for a couple weeks now. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we kind of have the summary statement for the book of Acts. Jesus tells his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. And with that power, you're going to have the power to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that kind of gives the scope for the book. It starts off in Jerusalem, then it moves forward to Judea, then it moves outer to Samaria, and then it moves forward to the ends of the earth. And with this power that they received from the Holy, uh, from the Holy Spirit, the disciples quickly, they started to witness. They started sh to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit started to work miracles in and through them, and people started to get saved and respond to the gospel. But quickly opposition from the spiritual authorities in Jerusalem rose against them. After their first encounter, we see this in chapters 3 and 4, uh, you know, the religious institution comes against them. And the church gathers to pray and worship as a response because they were let go. And afterwards, the, the church gathers, they're in prayer, they're bringing gifts. And uh, a couple in the church, we discussed this last week, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, lied to the apostles in order to make themselves look good spiritually. And the result was that they were both struck dead and buried the same day. And fear came over everyone because of this. People were gripped in a new way because the fact that God was not only gracious, but that God is holy. And now we see that after that, we, have, we see that the apostles have a deeper reverence for God. And as a result, God is now working even more through them, through the miraculous. We saw this last week in verses 12 through 16. And up to this point, not one of the apostles have been physically harmed for advancing the gospel. But that all changes in today's passage. As they ministered, as God is saving more and more people, as he is delivering people, as he is healing people, we are going to see how uh, we can compare how the religious establishment reacted to these events and how the apostles in the church responded uh, to these events. So, number one, the council. They attacked the truth. Let's look at verses 17 through 28. It says, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. Filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council all the Senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. 
Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set, before them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Right away, we see that the religious establishment, the council, the Sanhedrin, they're not happy with what's going on. Instead of being excited for what God is doing through the apostles, like people who are sick, the people who are paralyzed are actually receiving healing, and they're not excited for that. People's lives are being changed, and they're not excited for that. But instead, they're filled with jealousy. And that jealousy causes them to, to arrest the apostles and throw them into prison. This is the second time that the religious establishment opposed the ministry of Jesus. Uh, they opposed Jesus while he was here. They had him crucified. Now they, they, they opposed them when they healed a paralytic man in front of the beautiful gate. And now they're taking the same hostile approach toward the apostles. And what is happening that's causing this to happen? Well, number one, in their eyes, Christianity, the way of Jesus, is, is heresy. It, it's a sect that needs to be stopped. You know, but it's spreading. Thousands are responding to the gospel. People are being healed. People are being delivered. But what's happening is that rather than people going to them, to the religious leaders for spiritual guidance, they're going to these untrained, unordained people for guidance. They were jealous. And because their jealousy, they arrested the apostles and threw them in public prison. The apostles knew about the healing of the paralytic man. They heard about these un unlearned, ignorant apostles expounding the scriptures with eloquence and great understanding. They even heard about the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. They've witnessed the supernatural, miraculous manifestations. They saw power right in front of them. They didn't understand it. They, they couldn't explain it. But because of that, what was weird is that they didn't adopt a, a humble attitude to say, you know what? We, we, we cannot explain what's happening in front of us. We, we, we see it. We can't explain it, but, but, but let's investigate it. Facts are facts after all. These things are happening, and something must be working through these men that, that the lame are walking, that the blind are seeing. What is going on? There must be something else. But instead of adopting humility, intolerance and fair play and giving the apostles a chance to, to explain themselves, they dismissed the events. They're filled with jealousy, with anger, with annoyance, with indignation, and they're trying to put a stop to all this preaching and teaching. We see this in, in, in today in our culture and society, specifically in the media. It, it, it's weird that when someone famous, whether they're an actor, musician, they really, when they really get saved and really surrender their lives to Jesus, you don't see that they are happy that someone who previously cheated on their spouse wants to be faithful with their spouse. 
Someone who previously was addicted to pornography or to drugs now is delivered and wants to live a better life. They're not celebrating that. Instead, they get ostracized because of their faith in Jesus. They can't understand why someone would want to be faithful or want to lead a healthy life or not want to engage in foolish living anymore. They, instead, they're ostracized. And as we see in the text at the court, the council reacted with jealousy and threw them in prison. But what's interesting is that the apostles didn't say, hey, you're violating my rights. We're innocent. They didn't resist the arrest or organize a public protest. They quietly went along with the temple guard and spent a few hours in public jail. But as proof of their innocence, God sends an angel to deliver them and tells them to keep on preaching. And there is so much irony here because the majority of the, of the Sanhedrin, this council, were made up of the Sadducees. And last time we mentioned the Sadducees is that they were the religious liberals. They denied the reality of angels. They denied the reality of the supernatural. But yet in front of them, supernatural things are happening. You know, they deny the reality of angels, but yet God sends an angel to deliver his apostles. So what happened after this miraculous deliverance? Verses 21 to 23 goes something like this. The, the officers come in and they say, hey guys, we got good news and bad news. You, which one do you want to hear first? Well, the good news is um, everything was locked. And, you know, we went in, uh, the, the officers were there, the chains were there, but when we opened it up, the, the criminals, were, they weren't there. And, and the council responds like, huh? What do, you, what do you even mean? Like, that doesn't even make sense. What do you mean that the officers were there the chains were intact, but the people are not inside. What are you talking about? It's baffling them. They're dumbfounded by them. But someone comes in and with shocking news that the former prisoners are now teaching in public. It's like, hey, yeah, you put them in jail, but for some strange reason, they're actually out on the porch teaching the people. But rather, what's unique is that the council changes their tactics. Rather than forcefully trying to bring them in, out of fear, for the people to say, you know what, without, you know, let's bring them out. Let's bring them so that we don't upset the people. It says that so they had a fear of not being stoned. They accused the apostles of violating their command to not teach in the name of Jesus. In essence, they're saying, guys, you're making us look bad. Like, we're the religious leaders. We're the authorities. We told you not to preach in this name, but yet you're doing it anyway. You're making us look bad. Now, it's helpful in verses 17, 24, and 26 to see Luke's use of the variety of the emotions describing the council. Verse 17, he says that they were jealous. Verse 24 says that they were perplexed, that they were dumbfounded. Verse 26 says that they were afraid. Three driving forces that led them to attack the truth of God. They attacked the truth, one, because they suppressed it. They suppressed the truth. Their attack, their opposition was rooted in unbelief. They didn't believe in the claims that the apostles were sharing. And this belief was irrational. Like lives are being changed for the better, but yet they want to attack them. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. And when they have the apostles brought before them, right away, they want to flex their authority. I don't know about you. Have you ever been put in a situation when, when someone you know they're in the wrong, but rather than you know, humbling themselves and apologizing for the wrong that they're doing, they just want to double down and flex their muscles. 
And this time they just double down and they say, you know what? We strictly charge you to not preach in this name, but yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're making us look bad. But even with that statement that they're saying, there's irony. They're saying like, guys, why are you trying to bring this man's guilt upon us? You're telling everyone that we killed this man. But the truth is, they're the ones in, that Matthew records, they said, crucify him. They're the ones who riled up the crowd to say, let this man's blood be upon us and our children. Look at Matthew chapter 7, 27, verses 20 to 25. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They said it, but yet they're standing here trying to say, why are you trying to make us feel guilty? But they're the ones who, at the crucifixion of Jesus, were shouting, crucify him. We're shouting, let his blood be on us and our children. Hindsight is 2020, right? We, we, can, we stand here, it's 2023, and we look back, and we can say, what is wrong with those people? It's very easy for us to sit house, sit here and see how the council was wrong in their response. But how many times have we not denied certain facts? How many times have we resolved to bully tactics when deep down we knew we were wrong? We aren't always the hero. Sin in our hearts causes us, it clouds our judgment and hinder the work of God in our life. Sin in the lives of the council led them to, to jealousy, to, to confusion, and, and fear led them to fight against the truth. But let's see how the apostles, number two, affirm the truth. Look at verses 29 through 32. But, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles basically respond, yes, you are guilty of his blood. The council was fearful, but the apostles were fearless. The apostles respond with bold gospel proclamation. It's also worthy to notice that the reference to obeying God, not man, is within the context of obeying and preaching the gospel. This section, if you look closely, he begins like, hey, we must obey God rather than men. And he says, we are witnesses of these things whom God has given to those who obey him. Everything in this text is not talking about how we should rise up against government, but rather, whenever someone says you need to stop preaching the gospel, your response is, we have to obey God, not man. 
So the apostles affirmed the truth that although y'all killed him, God raised him. Y'all rejected him, but God vindicated him. God has reversed your verdict and he wants it publicized. We are to obey God in publishing, uh, publicizing his work, not join you in suppressing it. So what was the truth that the apostles affirmed? Verse 30 highlights that they affirmed the crucifixion. It says, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Verse 30 also references the resurrection, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 31 says they affirm the ascension, that God has exalted him to the right hand as leader and savior, and they also affirm that they are witnesses of these things in verse 32. They affirmed the key tenets of the gospel. They affirmed that Jesus was a real person who really died by crucifixion, but literally rose on the third day from the grave and literally ascended to heaven. And they are witnesses of these things. They saw it with their own eyes. Those are the words of life that in the word in verse 20, that the angel of the Lord told them to keep proclaiming. It says, go keep teaching of the words of this life. This life is the gospel. God loves humanity so much that he sent Jesus to live a perfect life on behalf of people who would reject him. Jesus took on a criminal's death, even though he was innocent, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave victoriously on the third day. And because of his resurrection, he is both Lord and Savior, and we are witnesses of these things. In 1993, um, I believe this was the, during the time of Desert Storm and uh, one, one of the many wars against terrorism. Um, an American TV journalist um, interviewed a group of children from a Sunday school in southern Sudan in an area where many uh, Muslim Arabs regularly raised uh, their village and raided their village and slaughtered many people, specifically Christians. And many of their children had already been killed, but yet they're interviewing these children. And as they're being interviewed, the journalist asked them, would you turn to Islam or would you prefer to die for Christ? Would you turn to Islam knowing that life would be easier for you or would you die for Christ? And the children replied, we will remain Christians because this is the truth. These children knew Christ was the way. They knew that he was the truth. They knew he was the life. They knew that forsaking Christ to escape earthly punishment was to go against the truth. These were children, but yet they recognized, they affirmed the truth. The apostles, fearless in the face of opposition, affirmed the truth of the gospel, even though the council attacked it. But something interesting happens. A Pharisee stands up to be a voice of reason. So let's look at verses 33 to 39, and we're going to see how Gamaliel avoided the truth. Verse 33 says, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, 
Thutis rose up claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For it is for if this for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So in the midst of all the drama that's going on, in the midst of the, the apostles boldly proclaiming the gospel, speaking the truth to power, we are told that their hatred, their jealousy, their anger got so heated that they wanted to kill them. The fury of the Sanhedrin escalated to such a degree that they plotted to kill the apostles. And at this point, the apostles found an unexpected ally in Gamaliel. Gamaliel, side note, he is the teacher whom the apostle Paul studied under. As we go see through the, the book of Acts, we're going to see that the apostle Paul would commonly reference Gamaliel when he's talking to the Jewish people, when he's talking, he's like, hey guys, I'm one of y'all. Like, I studied under so-and-so. Like, what I'm preaching, you should, you should take serious weight. So here, Gamaliel basically said, before you kill these men, consider what you are doing. I have lived a long time and I have seen many things. If you guys remember, there was a guy named Thutis. He, he rose up. He claimed to be a messianic figure, but he died. But his movement came to nothing. And another guy, Judas, rose up and then he died. So listen, guys, like you need to understand that if, if something I have learned, that if something is from God, it's going to prosper. But if it's not from God, it's going to collapse on himself. So my advice is don't do anything to these, to these men. Just let it play out. Because if they are leading, being led by God and you oppose them, you are going to be fighting against God. On the surface, it sounds like very good advice. We, people praise Gamaliel for being wise, for being gracious, for being very understanding. But his advice was very worldly. He skated around the issue, if you look at it. He didn't take the issue far enough. If he, if he took the, a humble posture, he would have added, in the meantime, since we're so closely tied to this, they're accusing us of actually doing these things. And we are the spiritual leaders of this nation. Let's investigate this matter. Let's see if what they're saying is true. And if there's nothing to it, let it run its course and let it go away. But if, if it is true, if Jesus rose from the grave and he is the promised Messiah, then we need to be like these men urging the nation to turn from their sin, to seek forgiveness and trust in Jesus. But he didn't. Gamaliel tried to use cool logic rather than overheated emotions. We can see that investigating the claims of Christ was not in his periphery. He threw the evidence out the window. He didn't even consider it. Right away, how do you see this? Right away, he, he identifies Jesus as a rebel. He says, Jesus is just like Thutis. 
He's just like Judas again. I'm going to identify with Jesus, Jesus with two rebels rather than actual a, a, a messianic teacher or a, a, a true teacher of God's word. He, he saw Jesus of Nazareth as just another zealous Jew, another zealous Jew trying to set the nation free from Rome. However, the one thing that he is right on is that if God plans to accomplish something, it cannot be stopped. That's the only truth that he proclaimed. People have been trying to stop the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. And people are still trying to stop it today, but no one can stop it. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's his church. There is no demon in hell, no scheme of man, no earthly opposition that's going to stop the mission of Jesus from moving forward. But one thing that we can learn from Gamaliel is that trying to be neutral isn't always the best move. There are going to be times, leaders, listen up, where you cannot be diplomatic. You have to make a decision. Gamaliel avoided the truth and he wanted to please everyone. But there is a time that is coming and it's probably here where you can no longer be neutral to the things of God and the things of the world. There is a time, whether at school, whether at work, whether in your family, where you're either going to have to stand for Christ or stand against him. And we have seen the council, they attacked the truth. The apostles affirmed the truth. Gamaliel avoided the truth. But the next response we're going to see at the church of large is they responded by announcing the truth. Look at verses 39b to 42. And it says, when they... So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Well, Gamaliel made sense to the apostles, to the, to the authorities. But the authorities refused to let the apostles go scot-free. It says they took his advice. And when they brought in the apostles, they beat them. Then they let them go. And if you read fast, you can skip over, gloss over the reality that they were beat. Some translation says that they were flogged. And this most likely refers to, to the Jewish punishment of 40 lashes less one. It was a very serious beating. People were known to die from it. They used a, a, a triple strap of a calf hide, of calf hide, and they would, they would tell the guys who were being punished, you need to take off your shirt. I don't know about you, have you ever been punished where you're, like, your parents try, they're about to beat you and they tell you to take your clothes off? <laughs> Like, I, that was me. Like, there were times where I prepared myself. I put on some sweats and jeans because I know I'm about to be punished. And my mom was like, go take a shower. And I was like, dang. God. Oh, man, it's about to hit me. <laughs> but the point for them is like, listen, we don't want anything to get in the way about the, the punishment that you're going to receive. In this moment, they had them strip their sh the, the shirts off. They, they would bend over and they'd be whooped. It's the same beating that Jesus received right before his crucifixion. 
You know, the, the, it would, you know, the idea was that they would count one, two, all the way to 39. And the point was that this was not a slap on the wrist. They, they were trying to teach the apostles a lesson. This pain would have been unbearable. Their chest, their backs would have been gushing with blood. But what is astonishing is how they respond to this brutal punishment. They, it says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They rejoiced. They didn't question it. They, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. I don't know if I can even say I would rejoice after receiving such a beating. I would be conflicted in my heart. Like, I, I know, Jesus, that we're supposed to turn the other cheek, but everything within me wants to, to, to pay them back. But they rejoiced. This is one of the reasons why some Christian psychologists say Christianity must be true. Because when we look at the testimonies of the apostles and we look at the testimonies of the early church and we look at what they actually had to endure and they still did not forsake the name of Jesus, they must have suffered for something they wholeheartedly believed to be true. I don't have it here, but in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about how people were willing to be willing to be sawed in two, to be thrown into the lions for the testimony of Christ. But they, did, they didn't forsake Christ. They didn't deny Christ because they announced the truth through their suffering. Through their willingness to suffer, they announced the truth of the gospel. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. But they also announced the truth through verbal proclamation. Verse 42 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. They did not stop teaching and preaching that the Christ was Jesus. They kept going. The mission kept going. The council couldn't silence the witness of the gospel. In 1555, there was a man named Thomas Howler who was burned at the stake in England. And I got this story from uh, Voice of the Martyrs, Jesus Freaks. If you don't have it, you should read it. Highly uh, heart-wrenching but inspiring and they write what happened right before he was burned at the stake. And the night he, before he died, he had a friend uh, that he was arrested with, lower his, his voice and ask him, like, hey, Thomas, I need to ask you a favor. Tomorrow, before you are hung, let me know if what others say about the grace of God is true. Tomorrow, when they burn you, if the pain is tolerable, but in your mind you still have peace. Can you lift up your hands above your head and do it right before you die? Because Thomas, I need to know. The next morning, Thomas was bound to the stake and the fire was lit. The fire burned for a long time and Thomas remained motionless. And many people thought, that he was dot he that he was dead because his skin was burnt to a crisp and his fingers were gone. Everyone supposed he was dead, but suddenly, miraculously, Thomas lifted his hands over the fire over his head and reached up to the living God, and rejoicing, clapping his hands together three times. 
And when the people saw that, they, they bursted into shouts of praise and applause. And Thomas, along with many saints throughout church history, announced the truth of the gospel through their willingness to suffer for the truth. And, if, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the most precious message. We have the gospel. And as we live sold out lives for Jesus, spreading the gospel, there's going to be a time where you're going to have to embrace suffering to identify with him. And this passage that we just looked at should be an encouragement to us because we should know that Jesus is going to be with us no matter the cost. So to conclude, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on, to come back up. What we have seen, we've seen four different responses to the truth. And this is relevant for us today because we live in a time where people either oppose truth or want to redefine truth. And oftentimes this redefining of truth is meant to enable and encourage sinful behaviors and attitudes to go unchecked. And the main takeaway, the main idea I want us to see from this passage is that truth worth believing is truth worth living and suffering for. Truth worth believing is truth worth living and suffering for. That's it. That's the one thing we should take away from these four different response. Because if the truth of God has girt your heart through the gospel, if the gospel has transformed your life, then the truth is worth living for. It's worth announcing, but it's also worth suffering for. So as we think about these four different responses, which one stands out to you the most? Which one sounds like the way that you would respond? Would you, are you like the council? Are, when the truth is right in front of you, are you attacking it? Are you dismissing it because the claims just don't make sense? Or maybe are you attacking it and dismissing it because the ethical claims actually conflict with your daily life. They get in the way of the way you want to live your life. Or maybe you're like Gamaliel. You're, you're not anti-Jesus, but you're not pro-Jesus. You just want to be cool with everyone. You don't want to cause strife or opposition. But the truth of Jesus demands a response. Don't attack it. Don't avoid it. Receive it and embrace it. Jesus came into this world to, to save broken sinners like you and me. He died so that you won't have to face the penalty of your sin. And if you want to receive that truth, we'd love to have a conversation with you and how you can walk in the newness of, newness of life in Christ. But if you're a partner at Fellowship Raleigh, and maybe you've been in a season of lukewarmness where you've been encouraged by this passage with how the apostles and the church at large responded to opposition, but deep down you know you won't respond the same way. Listen, I understand that it's very easy to feel ashamed about that. But one thing that we can be encouraged about is that the same Peter who responded was the same Peter who denied Christ. The, the God we serve is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances. We have a gracious God. And you can ask him to help you come back to your first love. Listen, God's truth will be opposed, and, and it is unpopular. But truth demands a response. It can be attacked or avoided 
or it can be affirmed and proclaimed. Truth worth believing is truth worth living for and suffering for. Let's pray.